0: I, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from God, Amen. Last week, we ended with our conversation on the verse, to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. So it's 1 Peter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And so, I asked you two questions which was, um, how can we prepare to give that sort of defense? And uh, we talked about having um, the the preparation of uh, of the mind and the preparation of the heart. And I think that's a good way to kind of break them up. So that we can, uh, in a sense, be intellectually knowledgeable. um, But that's not really what matters. Um, even though it's important for us to know theology and what our faith is really all about and to read theological books and to know the Bible and to know that sort of knowledge, we said that uh, the preparation of the heart, which is your relationship with God, your life of prayer, to r- really be united with Christ, to, to know him on a personal level is um, the, the heart of the matter, okay? and so that was our first question the second question that I asked you which we really didn't get to discuss which was um, how does uh, that defense look like when it's done in meekness and fear and so we talked about how to prepare but now how to give that defense and so everybody who's reading this, this verse will say All right, we're, uh, we ought to give it with meekness and fear Right, but what does that really mean? What does that look like? So that's my question to you. How do we give that defense with meekness and fear in a practical way? Hmm. To
1: me, one of the first things that comes to mind is still it needs to come from a place of
0: love. Okay. From a place of love. You, so practically, what is um, a defense that comes from a place of love look like? Um, I think it's being gentle in your defense. If you're trying to correct someone to do mm. it gently in a loving manner. Okay, very good. Just having gentleness. Not like aggressive. Like, let me show you what the Orthodox faith is all about and just kind of like bash him over the head with it. No matter how right you are, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. Unless you're like St. Nicholas, who like punched Arius in First Ecumenical Council, but St. Nicholas isn't here, so (laughs) half of you just missed that, but it's okay. (laughs) In the First Ecumenical Council, um, St. Nicholas punched Arius because he claimed that Christ was not God. And so it's not the right way to go about things, but that was, you know, that was an exception. (laughs) Alright, so, be gentle. Don't be aggressive. What else?
2: I think we mentioned it last week. I have no idea. Sorry. sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Do I apologize? (laughs) 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 Um, We touched on it last week. We said it wasn't like when you're conversing about the faith or about Christ, it's not and even in your defense when you're getting attacked, it's not that you're trying to win the argument but that you it is a place of love because you're trying to win the soul so it goes back to Mm -hmm. intent if you care about that person truly then it is done with meekness and gentleness because your concern is them and their soul being won over for God not just I won
0: the argument very good very good you care about the heart of the individual you care about the soul not just you care about proving the facts yeah there's a couple of hints
3: um, I think I think, being fearful and very careful about what you say because there's so many times where I saw religious conversations being like taking part where one party would say stuff that's absolutely incorrect and they completely believe that that's the right stuff to be saying. So I think uh, knowing where your knowledge ends and being mm. able to withdraw from the conversation when you reach that limit
0: because if you say anymore you're not sure. correct anymore so it sounds like you're saying to be honest with yourself and check yourself where your knowledge ends like if i don't know this n- no need to Talk pretend to that. that yeah be, be sincere genuine honest in what you know and know you don't I think, when, I think
2: when people are having conversations like trying to win over someone's soul for god um i think a lot of people get scared to come up as not knowing something. Like if somebody asks, well, let me ask you this, and they're kind of being defensive about it, and you get that vibe from them, a lot of people are like, if I say I don't know, mm-hmm. they're gonna think what everything I'm saying is wrong or whatever. So they they try to compensate by like saying something that can be totally bizarre, but it's honestly not a big deal. I so many times I'll be like, honestly, I don't know that question, but. I have a Guna on speed dial, like, give me one minute, like, and I'll, like, text an Aguna or I'll, like, be like, I'll get back to you, like, what's your contact info or anything, and that goes over better yeah. when they're, like, oh, they have somebody who even knows more than this person, yeah. um, and then just honesty, like, yeah. they feel more comfort with you that, hey, you know, she doesn't actually know everything, she's not
0: trying to act what she knows everything, it's more comforting for them. Exactly.
4: Yes. Uh, I think the practical side of things also helps a lot, like actions speak louder than words. So if you're in in a conversation or you're talking to someone that sees you on a regular basis or knows you, you can draw on on those actions, like be the light, show them by actions what our religion is all about. Uh, Draw on examples, draw on something practical in the conversation. Hmm. practical examples that they can put their hands on because our religion is mostly felt not everybody is on the same level so you have to have them believing in something they can aim at, put yeah. their hands on see so they yeah. can build on that and reach the level that so not all of us want to be
0: in. you're not preaching a philosophy gives them like the real what the faith looks
4: like exactly very good but uh, I
1: have comment about this one. Also. But sometimes when you do this, like action, they feel like it's not face, it's not like manners. It's like so some people like godless, and they have more manners than they have. So mm. How do you know I am, um, or how to express? Because your face is not your the manners. Because sometimes uh, yeah. you love, or so, so many, anyone can love, okay. it's not the face. Well,
0: that's where we draw the distinction between preaching a moral life and preaching a person so I don't bring people to a life of morality and a life of honesty and a life of integrity that's the product of preaching Christ so I preach a person so my intention is to draw closer to Christ and in having Christ I consequently have the life of honesty and a a life of integrity a a life of faith Um, and that package of those behaviors comes with it as a result and so a person who lives a good moral life that doesn't care about Christ just talks about the morality talks about a, a, a a life of integrity. Right? But the person of Christ doesn't matter. No,
1: I'm talking about the action. So yeah, important. but the action, so someone
0: can have actions of of honesty and integrity, the person can even be more selfless than some Christians, right? But the distinction is what, where your faith is centered. Does that make sense? that's why we're not just preaching actions we're not saying go live a good life and do good deeds I might as well just preach every religion that endorses peace I might as well just endorse Buddhism and uh, tell people to follow Gandhi right? so the distinction is the person we're preaching I mean there's overlap with a life with Christ, and a relationship with Christ, and a moral life because you can't have Christ in your heart and break away from um, a life of honesty, a life of integrity, and having morals. But that's not the goal. I think Jack, you want to say something here? Oh no, I guess it. to um, I think Paul in Philippians says, like, make your conduct be worthy of the, the gospel. Uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that, like, if, we, if we're preaching with aggressiveness and, and blame and, and all these, like, anything that's not Christian, it's not nice going to compel anybody to
4: be Christian. Because if they're yeah. saying, like, you know, if this is your religion, why should I act the, way, yeah. the same way you are? And I think it was St. Augustine said that said that, like, preach the gospel if necessary use words.
0: Yes. Right? So it's... It's, it's very powerful. Yeah. So it's it's in that way. It's very powerful. So I think everybody just hit so many critical components of what it really means to preach with, um, or to defend the gospel um, that it's not just limited to like, the verbal sort of preaching the conduct and having that sort of honesty but I just wanted to add something that I felt gets often overlooked um, when it comes to giving a defense and that's listening uh, even though our actions might be in the right place, and even though um, our words come gently, uh, if we don't know what's really bothering a person, if we haven't really listened to their past, their experiences, um, their their issues with the faith or whatever it is, then so often we may be just talking in vain. Right? And I feel like... Um, we may be talking to somebody and the whole time we're just formulating what we're going to say while the person is talking and the whole time the person said like seven or eight very critical things that we haven't even heard because we're putting together that equation of the perfect defense of the faith and we're thinking about even a practical example of who it is that walked with Christ and the reason why we should commit our life to God and all these things but maybe the issue is something we totally missed you know? So I think we're in a day, we're, we're, we're at a day and age where listening is very rare. So it's just something for us to be mindful of. Okay. So let's read verse 16 and 17. anyone just go for it. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revolve you, your good conduct, and Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing, for doing evil. Okay, very good. Just take a moment to read that one, I okay? And um, on your own. so what are your thoughts on those two verses it's just a lot right there okay so let me ask you a question just to get the ball rolling in verse 16 from the very first phrase he says having a good what? conscience. Conscience. Alright so let's first try to define that what is the conscience? what does that mean? well you, you do want to be ready but in just the generic definition of the conscience. I want to make sure we're all on the same page and defining it before we even built on on the implications of it. Your thoughts. Your thoughts. Okay. Anything else? Your actions. Your, Your actions. actions. Not necessarily. Can
1: conscience good conscience be the opposite
0: of guilt a good good conscience well, would be before, before we even define a good one I just want to know what a conscience is your
4: mind and intentions
0: mind and intentions very good what else we're trying to start to put it together where are you going to say something I'm starting to what's good conscience okay hmm
2: the moral compass
0: oh very good <laughs> alright yeah, 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 yeah. I like that elaborate <laughs> like uh, your
2: conscience is always <laughs> Kind of gearing you towards what you should be doing that's correct
0: or oral. Very good. Very good. It's that sort of like litmus test or that, the, the detector of your thoughts and actions, your motives, your intentions. It's that little voice in your head that tells you what you're doing. spirit. spirit very good and that's what my next question is where is that voice from? or more specifically who is that voice? and it's and it's the Holy Spirit Himself this is what all the fathers tell us that the Holy Spirit speaks to us in directing that sort of intuition that we ought to have and that's why you'll see that the people that come closer to God have a more heightened sensitivity to what's right and what's wrong. Why? Because the Holy Spirit speaks louder in their mind. And the Holy Spirit tells them, this is the right thing to do, that's the wrong thing to do. They'll talk to somebody, and after they leave, the Holy Spirit will tell them, you are a little too rough, or you are a little too aggressive, or you are a little too blunt. You know that voice will kind of tell you, I should have probably said it this way, I should have been gentler, I shouldn't have picked on that person that way. That's the Holy Spirit that always keeps you in check. And the closer you come to God, the louder that voice is. So look what St. Hilary of Arles says. Our conscience is the part of you which embraces what's good and which rejects evil. It's like the doorkeeper of a house which is open to friends and closed to enemies. So it's that, it's that doorkeeper, it's what keeps things in check. It's, it's the, the voice that tells you, well, this has no business in my life. Does it make sense? Because we're chuckling about something. Did your conscience convict you about something recently? Or lack of, which can be a bigger problem. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I feel like you're going to tell me I'm wrong. which is fine. <laughs> I was always taught, um, or in my own brain formed this opinion, that the conscience is more so the image of God because everybody has a conscience, but not everyone has the Holy Spirit. All right, so the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is stronger, and it is Christ in you versus. Everyone was created with the image of God, and so therefore everyone has the conscience. But that they're two separate okay. things.
0: Very, very, very good. All right. And so you're getting into like the details of okay. of like anthropology. Okay. okay. So you you understand the question? Okay. What's that do you okay.
2: <laughs> I want to know if it's accurate. Shows it know If
0: that's <laughs> the way we ought to understand who we are. Okay. So. The truth is, consciousness or self-awareness is an attribute of humanity alone. And yes, that is a product of us being in the image of God. Um, Man is the only creature with true self-awareness and true consciousness that can invest, not based on impulse, but based on a deeper motive. You you can invest based on your, your future hopes and dreams and aspirations. No other creature can do that. But for that consciousness to have that sensitivity that it's created to have, in its original form, it was guided by the Spirit. Does that make sense? And so in the fall, the Fathers tell us that man himself was fragmented, was divided. That there was division, not just between all of nature where everything in uh, the animal kingdoms kind of fell apart, but within us internally, our mind, our thoughts became fragmented. Our thoughts became distorted. That's why it's very hard for us to stay focused on God. Um, But Adam and Eve, before the fall never forgot about God, right? Their mind was just communion, union. And so once we fell, our mind was a part of that whole fall. And so now, in restoring our mind, we can restore God's presence in our mind. And that's where the work of the Spirit comes in. But that's not to say those who are close to God have the Spirit speaking in their conscience, and those who are far do not. He's always speaking in our consciousness. It's just that some of us may be more sensitive to it than others. Does that make sense? Everybody else understand that? It's a very important concept. And that's why we we ought to always spend time alone with our own thoughts to just reflect on our life and to really examine our thoughts and, and let our conscience just face reality and let the spirit speak and reveal things David said search me Lord and know my heart reveal to me if there are any wicked ways within me so we ought to always do that and the more we do that the more we can just uh, wipe away those stains and correct the way our lifestyle may be and that's how we can uh, become even more sensitive to his voice so the saints are never really asking um, how can I hear God's voice? The saints are never asking, like, "What's God? what does God want me to do? I can't hear. You know, they're always close enough that His voice is just so prominent. And that's where the Holy Spirit is always speaking in our context. Are you saying that non-Christians, not that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, but that God speaks to them? Yes. The Holy
4: Spirit, but the difference between the two is that where by knowing Him, we are, able, we are more sensitive to His voice.
0: Exactly. So, St. John Damascus says that in those who are baptized, the Spirit speaks from within, and those who are not, He speaks from externally, from without. That was my question. So, I
2: saying with baptism, we receive the Holy Spirit, so I want to know what the difference was.
0: So. Yes. But if you haven't been baptized, God doesn't just sit back and say, sorry, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just has to kind of break down a few doors to get through, because He's knocking from outside of the house. But in in baptism, we become a temple for His Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So we have that sort of advantage where we can hear His voice. Um, But that's why people who have not been baptized convert and believe and commit their life to God if it wasn't for God, you know, getting a hold of them and, and, and really speaking to them, n- nothing we can do will help. So he's still at work, but just in a different way. Any other questions about that? Okay, so now, I think at this point we can, we can understand what it means to have a good conscience. Right. So we know what the conscience is, but so a good one would be one that's what guided, guided by. The, okay, how is it guided? How does it reach a level where it's guided?
1: when you feel it inside?
0: Exactly. So like having that sensitivity, feeling it, knowing that you're guided, is a is a product of what? How does the conscience become good, become guided, become sensitive? relationship with God perfect There's really, I just want to bring it back to that simple practical level so you don't just think of like this philosophy it's really not just a matter of uh, like a formula or equation a good conscience is just a mind that is close to God a mind that's so close to God where it makes a mistake it knows right away it made a mistake a mind that will like lose sleep whenever it knows a friend was offended by our action that make sense? that's a good conscience a conscience that can't sleep because a person like still has beef with them so they need to go forgive me reconcile and have peace a bad conscience could carry us <laughs> they're mad they're not, whatever it's their problem, they could deal with it alright a good conscience, the one that seeks the things of God Alright, so, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And then, in verse 17, he says, it's better for if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so, we kind of alluded to this from the very first verse of this passage, from verse 13, where he talks about those who harm you as opposed to um, the the time of suffering and we made that distinction that suffering is not necessarily a matter of harm right but we do know here that there's an even further distinction in our suffering that it can come from two different things right the suffering can come from what two things Good good and evil okay so we can't uh, we, we, we can't drift into one extreme and say, "I'm suffering because the, the demons won't leave me alone, and the world is evil, and I'm suffering because of all the evil." Why? Because God is still involved. God is still powerful, and He's still looking out for you and everybody in this world and we can't say that well, God is involved and God is powerful so all of my suffering is a cause from God no, it's because of the sin that's in the world and the brokenness, the corruption the hatred that still lingers That, that those are the products of sin that make sense? so for us to understand that dynamic, yeah
4: quick question So. I have a problem relating God to everything that happens as a product of our atmosphere. It uh, just does not make sense to me. Like I cannot blame God for uh, me driving bad, for example, or uh, I cannot blame God for me being late to class or being late to work or Correct. any consequences on that. So it's like, Let's say I'm sitting with one of my friends, I'm complaining, and all of a sudden, they switch the whole thing about God, and I'm like, me complaining does not mean that I'm blaming it on God, and I, it doesn't make sense to me to put God in the equation of something that is purely out of my mistake, like it's, it's my fault. Right. Right. So, when you said the extreme of saying everything is because of what's happening in the world and the sin in the world, and not really God to it, I can understand that. Because it doesn't make sense to me to have God in the equation of something that is purely because of humans. Exactly.
0: And that's why um, I share the same passion with Father Thomas Hopko. Um, May the Lord repose his soul. But he had a a series of three podcasts where um, he spoke about the bumper sticker that said, Relax, God is in control. And so it's... It's true that God is powerful and He's very capable of moving pieces, but for us to say He's got it all under uh, His uh, domain and He's in control—you know, my conce- the consequences of my actions are just left up to Him to figure out—doesn't make sense. So it's really important for us to understand the the right balance. Right? It's a matter of balance. Now. Let's jump to verse 18 to 20. You can read that for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls,
2: were saved through water."
0: you very good. Take a moment to read that to yourself one more time. All right, so let's start from the very beginning of that little section. For Christ also suffered once for sins. I don't think we really need to spend much time clarifying the fact that he suffered. Uh, I mean, there are some heresies in the past that didn't really admit the true humanity of Christ. And that would imply he really didn't suffer if he wasn't a true human being. But I think we all know that now knowing that he was a true human being and he truly suffered it's important for us to understand that St. Peter says he also suffered what? once he suffered once for sins why did he throw in that once? well why does he just say for Christ suffered for our sins ok I know he suffered why stress that he suffered once?
4: The fact that there was the a cross? Hmm? Mm-hmm.
2: Is it only
4: in the cross? Does the suffering count? Sure. It's only the cross. Yeah. What else were you gonna say? The fact that he suffered once to our uh-huh. the, the one sin that we have, uh-huh. which is uh-huh. Adam and Eve. Like to to the legacy of, of a sin, technically. Right. So it was once that he made everything technically okay. go away. Okay. Very good.
1: You mean one sin, is it four other
0: million? No, the sin? the consequences of all sins oh. that he's saying were were covered by his suffering. Hmm. Is it? Does it mean like God is that great that only required one time? Oh. Very good. So let's all put it all together. He's stressing the fact that the cross and the one and only cross is all we need we don't need another cross you suffered once, okay what more do you want? like the crucifixion, the resurrection is sufficient for eternity it's to cover the sins of any man or woman that will be born on earth from Adam to the end of the age you suffered once and so I I want to bring your attention to a little passage where God emphasized the significance of this matter to Moses before it actually came to fulfillment. Okay, so in Numbers 20, I'm just going to jump straight into it for the sake of time. In Numbers 20, verse 7, um, whenever Moses was instructed to speak to the rock that it may give water. Take a look at what happens. It says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before them, and it will give its water. Thus you shall bring them water out of the rock, and give drink to the, to the congregation and their cattle. Okay. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as the Lord ordered him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear me, you disobedient ones. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Alright, so he brings him, he's about to do what God told him. He said to do what?
4: Speak to, the rock. Speak
0: to the rock. Okay, this is what he does. Moses then lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rock. And water came out of the congregation and their cattle drank. So he struck the rock twice. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to sanctify me before the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land I'm giving them. Moses is prohibited from entering the promised land because of this one single act. And It wasn't just a matter of disobedience. It was a matter of what? So it says, because you, you did not what? Believe me. How is this a matter of believing? How is this a matter of faith? I don't
2: know if they believe
0: that they just spoke to the rock like he said. Okay. Dig even deeper in, into the symbolism. What is the rock? The St. Paul tells us word for word. The rock that followed them is? I heard it. Someone said the cross. Christ. Christ. The rock is Christ. Okay, and so striking the rock is? the first word that you thought was the cross Okay, so the rock is Christ and striking the rock is the crucifixion when the rock, which is Christ was struck is the cross Christ was struck on the cross The, the crucifixion is basically the symbolism of striking the rock and so for Moses to strike the rock twice is almost an insult not almost it absolutely is an insult to the power of the cross that what more do you need than the one cross you don't need another one and so for Moses to strike the other rock, the rock a second time was blasphemous it's, it's to imply that we need another crucifixion or we need another cross or we need somebody else to add on to what Jesus did that's it. he did it all did it once and for all and that's it that's why this was a very big deal. When when Moses struck the rock a second time, when he had no business even striking it, but he struck it even twice to say that, you know, it's to compromise the central um, event of salvation, which is the cross. Alright? So he's telling us, Christ also suffered once for sin and so bring that back to your own life is is whether the cross is really enough think about his suffering was that enough to identify with your suffering is that enough for you to confide in him or are you seeking for something else to comfort you besides the cross do you find all the comfort you need in the cross or are you seeking for something more because if You're looking for something additional to the cross. You won't find it. He's got nothing to offer you than his life on the cross. Alright. So he says the just for the unjust. Which is Christ for me. (laughs) That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the spirit. And we all see that he's made alive by what? by the Spirit, and Saint Paul throughout his letters will will continually emphasize that it was the Father who raised him up by the Spirit. Why? Because he took on our humanity, and he identified with our weaknesses. So in identifying with our weaknesses, he identified with our incapability, our incapacity to give ourselves life. So he surrendered himself to our very same needs just as we needed God to raise us up he said I'm going to be in your shoes I'm going to identify with your incapacity to live so he surrendered to death so that the father can raise him up the father raises him up by the spirit you see, again the work of the trinity in the resurrection although uh, in, in his dialogue with Pontius Pilate tells him you have no power over me, I have power to lay my life down and take it up again. So we know he could have raised himself up because he's God. But he suffered in the flesh identifying with our nature that the Father may raise him up by the Spirit because he was a true human being in as much as he was truly God. Does that make sense? Yeah? Alright, now, we got to Dig a little into the the next verse, cause it's just jam packed. By whom also he went and preached to the prisons, uh, to the spirits in prison. Like, what the heck is that all about? He he preached to the spirits in prison. <laughs> hmm. Um,
3: does that tie in with the next verse uh, where, after or between the time Christ died to the resurrection, when uh, He opened the prisons of everyone from Adam's time uh, so that they would, they, they would get resurrected?
0: Very good. Okay, so it says, Who we were formerly disobedient when the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah and the ark was being prepared. I don't want to get into the the part about Noah and the eight souls that were saved through water but we do know that the what, what he's alluding to about this prison is the state or the condition in which every soul that has departed was in prior to the coming of Christ does that make sense? so what's another word for this prison Hades perfect so this was Hades and everybody I mean everybody that died before the death and resurrection of Christ were in Hades like even the right hand thief like like, hung out for a minute then got pulled out (laughs) So, from Adam and Eve, Abraham, the righteous, and the unrighteous, had no access to heaven. They had no access to paradise because the price has not been paid. Salvation was not accomplished. The, the The grasp of death was not broken, and so they had no access. Um, uh, in, in, from, to escape from the pains of death alright so I want to share with you a beautiful meditation by Saint Cyril bear with me it's a little long but it is incredibly beautiful so he says going in his soul being Christ Christ going in his soul, he preached to those who were in hell or, or Hades, appearing to them as one soul to other souls. When the gatekeepers of hell saw him, they fled. The bronze gates were broken open and the iron chains were undone. And the only begotten Son shouted with authority to the suffering souls according to the word of the new commandment, saying to those in chains, Come out and to those in darkness, be enlightened. In other words, he preached to those who were in hell also, so that he might save all those who would believe in him. For both those who were alive on earth during the time of his incarnation and those who were in hell had a chance to acknowledge him. He was able to liberate those in hell who believed and acknowledged him by his descent there however the souls of those who practiced idolatry and outrageous ungodliness as well as those who were blinded by fleshly lusts did not have the power to see him and they were not delivered Okay, so did he just drop in say alright everybody like you guys that were chilling in Sodom and Gomorrah like all of you pack up your bags we're going to paradise no what, what we know is that he went to preach, not to just give a one-way ticket access, like a free, like, get-out-of-prison monopoly, <laughs> like, pass, go, collect $200, go to paradise. <laughs> it, it was literally the same concept as you would, you would apply to somebody who is alive on earth who heard him, saw him, and had the opportunity to believe. But many people who lived before him might have believed had they had the opportunity. So why would God deprive them of that? Does that make sense? So God, in His fairness and His love, would give them the same opportunity. So He went to give those who had no opportunity, an opportunity. But it's not like we believe in the sort of like universal salvation, Everybody, even Judas that was sitting there, did he pull him out too? The fathers explicitly say no. And you can even read about Judas himself, and they're com- commenting on Judas. And they'll tell you the same. Does that make sense? Any comments?
3: Yeah? Um, it might be a slight tangent, but um, we don't believe in the purgatory, right? Right, right. So people who died before the coming of Christ. Is there do we have a concept of how much time they waited? Is it is it like they died in the flesh and then they were catapulted to where Christ just went to Hades (laughs) and resurrected everyone or did they Uh, wait
0: there a little or like how does that work? I I have no idea. I know that it was definitely a waiting, but the experience of the waiting is in in a sense mysterious. Isn't Um, that because they're not, waiting, they're not waiting with the same concept of time as we have it where there's a daily cycle of 24 hour periods they're not in the flesh right because um, the flesh will not rise until the second coming and so that's why I even wanted to ask you why, why is it that he says that he preached to, to the souls in prison why did he say he preached to the bodies in prison or to the people he didn't say he preached to individuals because they're not even understood as a complete being they're the soul of each person because the body is still in the graves and so the body will not come from the graves until the second coming when it will be glorified and joined with, with the spirit, with the soul does that make sense?
3: But it's still, oh, it, it still, it still doesn't answer the whole question of why do we not believe in the purgatory Because that no be purgatory is a completely
0: different concept. Purgatory is the concept of uh, paying a certain price or consequence to, to to satisfy the extent of your sins, so that you can have access to paradise. Like the place of suffering to say, okay, now I paid for those sins. So that I can have access to paradise. Like if you were if you were bad but not so bad that you deserve to go to heaven or hell, you'd go to purgatory, pay for those sins, then go to hell. That's like a Catholic idea that we don't believe in. Yes.
1: But when Jesus died on the cross, after he died, there is, there is like they wake up from. The, yes, yeah, is is like the Walking Dead, the apocalypse.
0: <laughs> it's in Matthew, so yeah. th- that's just to indicate uh, and, and like emphasize that it was him and his cross that caused this event. But they went back to the grave. Yeah, I don't want that. like otherwise like, like Moses would be walking around and <laughs> but that's true they, they did rise from the grave and, and that's to emphasize that it was because of his cross and, and his death otherwise there would be no link for this event to happen immediately after the crucifixion it's to clearly link the two right? It's, it was because of his cross that we have now have life this event didn't happen life, a right. year later or, you know, we wanted to really link the power of this cross to the 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 gift of life. A new life. They were
1: gifted more than the other people
0: before. We are gifted well we never had to wait around in Hades.
1: Yeah, no. Witches <laughs> Hopefully we
0: don't have to go anywhere else. But very <laughs> nice. Very optimistic. I don't think. All right. Um, I have a question. Yes. How does
1: cremation fall into all this? Oh, okay. Because if the bodies are coming out of the grave, people that cremate and spread the ashes. Oh, yeah. Like, how does that work? Yeah.
0: So we we believe in in, in the sanctity of physical matter in the flesh and because the body itself will rise again, the body will be glorified and will live forever in eternity it needs to be respected and preserved we don't just disregard it, it's not like this sort of, like in the first century the church dealt with the concept of Gnosticism and it claimed that only the spiritual is good and the physical is bad you won't find it anywhere in Christianity. The physical is good. Christ himself became physical. He became physical matter. He became a body. So we can't say that. He created all things and saw that it was good. Right? So the body is good. Um, and just as a tangent, I, I really don't like when people think the opposite of, of spiritual is physical. The opposite of spiritual is not physical. The opposite of spiritual is sinful. Does that make sense? There is no contradiction or dichotomy. Anyway, so, taking that into consideration, we understand that the the flesh will rise, and so we need to pres- preserve it, respect it, keep it intact. <laughs> um, and, and And even endorse the medical use of our body if we want to be donors like that's good our body is good use it for the good of humanity Hmm.
4: another tangent so since we have to respect the body Hmm. comes two questions that i hear a lot in our church and i've never gotten a clear answer cremation and tattoos
0: okay so we talked about cremation tattoos so, where do ta- we stand so t- tattoos, you apply the same concept, that you have a sacred body, it's your your body is a temple of God. And so what you put on it has to be
4: filtered. But you're not ruining your body like most of the priests would say. I don't, I don't think if you have a tattoo,
0: you're ruining your body. But what you put on your body is what matters, where you put it, how much of it you put on, Like, if you have a sleeve of crosses, then it might be more of like a stumbling block than you wanting to praise God. Um, Tattoos isn't just a matter of artwork. It's not just saying, I I like this art and I want to put it on my body. And because we understand our bodies, uh, as St. Paul said, your body is a temple of God. You can't just say, oh, this is a nice picture. I don't want to hang it up on the church right here. You can't just hang up whatever you want in any place you want. Right? So how much more valuable is your body? As much as I love the church, if a church building burns down, does it compare to a human body burning? No. No even though the church building is valuable. But you can't even compare the, the, the actual physical structure to a, the physical body of a person that's much more valuable than, than the church physically speaking. So be careful and be wise and have the right filter. And I think there's no right or wrong answer, you can't just draw an arbitrary line okay yeah I passed so just for the sake of time um, I want to just briefly run through the meaning of eight souls that way we don't have to come back to this verse again Um, in the very next verse when he talks about who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And then he talks about, there's also an antitype which now saves us, which is baptism, but without getting into baptism. So want to talk about why he's now alluding to the time of Noah, and he mentions that those eight souls that were saved. Who are the eight souls? It was like Noah's camp. What What's eight typically symbolized or um, allude to? What's that number eight? Like when you say like on the eighth day. Seven Resurrection, Seven new creation. Three. Very Seven. Eternal life. Very good. Resurrection, new life, recreation, eternal life, and so for for the eight souls to have gone through that, it's first to say like it, it's emphasizing that 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 number eight, that is the emphasis on new life. And resurrection and, and he comes to say that this antitype which is now what saves us is baptism the ark was saved in what way what had to happen for the ark and people inside the ark to be delivered from all the corruption around them the beach. but water? perfect perfect he says not the renewal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God and he goes back to that good conscience that he mentioned earlier because now we come to see that what gives us that that pure consciousness is exactly the Holy Spirit, the renewal, baptism is it all clicking now? yeah? And whenever we are baptized, chrismated, who do we receive?
3: The Holy,
0: the Holy Spirit. So that's why he says, this is what saves us, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not just about something physical. It's not just saying about taking a shower and saying the, the physical filth of the flesh is saying like, "Your hair is dirty, you need to shower." or like you have some dirt on you because you were playing in the mud you need to no 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 it's about giving your mind a shower and that's what the Holy Spirit does Okay, and that's the power of His resurrection which He tells us happened on the 8th day the, the new day, the Sunday, which is the 8th day um, if you think of what the word Saturday means in Arabic, it's al-sabt, right? Except is what? Saba. Literally Sabbath or seven. seven. Sunday is what comes after seven? Eighth day. It's the day of the resurrection. Does that make sense? It's the day where new life comes. It's the day where baptism and renewal and a good conscience all take place. Okay? Okay, I
1: have a conflict now then. Because before it says that 7 is a complete number and this should be 7. Now it's 7 and 8. So 7 is. Yes. It's like a confliction between 7 and 8. I didn't say before it's an 8. Yes.
0: 7 is complete, but 8 is fulfillment. 7 is complete, but 8 is like now renewal. Like he completed it. But now, for the eight day, for the renewal, or the fulfillment, is where we understand the resurrection. Okay, does that make sense?
2: That seven was the Jewish version of complete, or like the Jewish tradition considered seven complete.
4: No, seven should be the number of completion. The the forgiveness verse yes, exactly. when he, the, it says. I, don't rem- I don't remember the exact, seven. yeah. Seven times is seven. That's 70, right. uh, 70 times, yeah. That's so good. it is. It is. The new week. Like So seven yes. is complete, but then the eighth day would be the beginning of the new week. So the new the new period. New start. Oh, right. It's, right. new it's star. about renewal. That makes sense.
0: Okay. Right? So it's about like, setting aside the old and in with the new. Okay? Um, sorry for going over time. I, I'll just leave you with this quote and then we'll wrap up here. Um, I, I want us to link the Ark and understand the Ark as we understand the Church. Okay, Being in the body of the Church is essentially what this Ark is. So, so St. Augustine, I can't pull it up on the screen, St. Augustine says the meaning must be that the Ark of Noah is a picture of the Church. And so those who were imprisoned in his days represent the entire human race in hell Christ rebuked the wicked and consoled the good so that some believed to their salvation and others disbelieved to their damnation and so now those who were in the church hear the preaching of Christ are saved just as those who were in the ark so outside of the ark was death but inside the ark was life. Inside the church is life. Inside the church is where we hear his word. And he preached, as he preached to those who were in prison and set them free. So long as we are in the ark, in the church, we will hear his word and be set free, be liberated from the grasp of sin. Make sense? Alright, and glory be to God forever. Amen. Take a moment to reflect on everything we discussed said so many amazing things so there's plenty for us to just reflect and um, find a personal message in, in, in our life so please take a moment to do that and then we'll wrap up